There is finally a post-Brexit trade deal between the UK and the EU, but does the agreement run the risk of pleasing nobody? We'll find out why Beijing continues to incarcerate journalists and whistleblowers probing the origins of COVID-19, and we'll recap the week's more uplifting news stories. There are some. That's all coming up right here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the Late Edition, coming to you from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. The full details of the trade deal finally thrashed out on Christmas Eve between the UK and the EU are emerging. There will be tariff-free and customs-free trade. There will also be more paperwork, more queues and more barriers when it comes to the UK accessing the EU's financial markets. And something that has struck a knelling chord among many, there will be an end to the Erasmus Student Exchange Scheme despite Boris Johnson's previous promises that Erasmus was under no such threat. Well, earlier today, the ambassadors of the 27 remaining EU member states have all approved the provisional applications of the trade deal. To find out more about what the deal actually entails and its likely true impact, Monocle's Emma Nelson was joined by Quentin Peel a bit earlier. Quentin used to be Berlin correspondent for the Financial Times and is now an associate fellow at the Chatham House think tank. Quentin has likened Boris Johnson's deal to Dunkirk, a terrible defeat repackaged as a momentous victory. Let's hear what Quentin had to say. It really is, uh, curiously, a rather better deal for the European Union than it is for Britain, um, because really what it gives is a, a tariff-free and uh, quota-free trade in goods, which is what the European Union has a substantial surplus in, and practically nothing in services, which is what the UK has a substantial service in, uh, surplus in. So uh, the result of that is that I think the EU, without wanting to crow about it, is actually coming off rather better. And we're trying to say, well, it's not quite what we were hoping for, but come on, it's better than nothing. Um, many people have said that actually this played absolutely into the EU's hands in terms of it came together as a unified body just at the time when uh, Britain has always sort of tried to play divide and conquer. And actually the European Union did what it is designed to do absolutely par excellence. Yes, I think, well, I think it was rather to the surprise of the European Union that they did manage to hold together uh, quite so well throughout, because there are many things dividing the European Union. But on this issue, they, they, hung, they stuck together to preserve the integrity of the single market and also to defend the interests of a rather small state who looked to be badly damaged by the whole thing, and that was Ireland. And I think those two things really kept the EU uh, going in the same direction. And whereas the British government side, as we saw throughout these negotiations, has been desperately divided within itself, it didn't really seem to know what it wanted, except except for one word, sovereignty. Now, let's explore this idea of sovereignty a little bit. Uh, apparently, this was a word that just kept emerging again and again and again right through the um, the negotiations. And it's something that yesterday the, the historian Neil McGregor, the British historian Neil McGregor, said that for Germany, the idea of sovereignty is actually possibly the abject opposite of what the British think it is, That insofar as the Germans think that it is bringing together different sides to create a greater good. There was always this ideological issue that was all, that was never going to be resolved, was it? Wasn't there, Quentin? 
Yes, I think that's right. And I think it took actually the European Union some time to really grasp how narrowly defined the, the concept of sovereignty was to the British. And essentially, the British said, we are a nation state and we're going back to be that pooling of sovereignty, which is what the European Union is all about. And as you say, that's very much what Germany uh, would see the European Union as representing. Pooling of sovereignty is anathema to the people who voted for Brexit. We don't want that. We want to go our own way. The trouble is, I do think that still we haven't decided on the British side quite what our own way is, which is why that a huge sector like the service industry and the financial service industry has been completely left out of it. Um, the UK Parliament and UK politicians are in a bind now, aren't they, Quentin? Because the divisions still remain, but the opposition must vote for this deal this week if we are to avoid a no deal. It's something that will come back and haunt any opposition party, isn't it, if things go wrong? I think that they are very torn. We see that the Labour Party is still split on the issue. Uh, as to Keir Starmer has decided, it seems, to definitely vote in favour because no deal would be far worse. And also, I think, tactically, because he knows that there is a significant minority of his party who are actually in favour of Brexit and they are in these seats that they lost to the Conservative Party uh, in the last election. So he's decided that he's got to go with it. That's not the same for the Scottish National Party, who will clearly vote against it. And I think the Liberals will almost certainly very largely vote against it. So uh, it's the Labour Party itself that's torn about this. What's it going to be like for the United Kingdom to deal with Brussels from the outside of the system? Well, really rather chilly, I think, to begin with. I think that having got a deal, that was hugely important. I mean, the utter nonsense that's been talked about, both by Theresa May and both by, and by Boris Johnson saying no deal is better than a bad deal, that was total nonsense. Thank goodness we haven't got no deal because that would have put us in a, in a very poisonous situation, I think, with Brussels. Well, having a deal, we've got the basis for building on it. So now they've got to do a deal of some sort on the services side of things. They've also got to deal with what looked like being very difficult and disruptive relations at borders. We're going to have a lot of new red tape coming in, which could make actually crossing borders for goods and for people really rather problematic in the coming months. Um, one German newspaper, Die Welt, has um passed a commentary, there's an op-ed in there this morning saying that without the EU, Britain no longer has, uh, I think it's a, a Prügelknaben, it's a whipping boy uh, for everything, every time something goes wrong. Basically the thought is that the United Kingdom used to blame the Uni European Union for everything when things didn't go the way that the U United Kingdom wanted it to. How much is this actually going to force the United Kingdom to look at its own systems? Oh, I think it will, because actually what's, what's the issue that's going to come up very rapidly is the cohesion of the United Kingdom itself. We've got a, a very upset Scotland saying we, didn't, we never voted for this, we don't like it. Uh, we've also got a situation in Ireland where Northern Ireland is in many ways now going to be closer to the Republic than it is to Great Britain. It's going to be easier to trade backwards and forwards in, within the island of Ireland than 
but it is across the Irish Sea. So that's one issue. Another one is that the whole of the British bureaucracy has been geared up to deal with Brussels uh, as part of the equation. And now it's going to be a third country in Brussels, much more difficult. We'll have to decide clearly what we want. And I'm not sure that we're a very divided country after the referendum. And I'm not sure that we're a country that is in a good position to say, this is the policy, that's the way we're going. Look at what Boris Johnson's been saying just in the last uh, couple of days since the deal was signed. Right, his priority now is levelling up. That doesn't seem to actually bear much relationship to the problems that are created by leaving the European Union. Quentin Peel there speaking to us earlier today on The Globalist. Now, a year ago this week, the Municipal Health Commission in Wuhan reported a cluster of cases of what appeared to be some weird new strain of pneumonia. A year later, life has returned more or less to normal in Wuhan for good, which is to say the city is no longer completely shut down, and for bad, which is to say that China is behaving with its customary ruthlessness towards internal dissent or disagreement. A citizen reporter, Zhang Zhan, has been sentenced to four years in prison for her online reports of the the early stages of Wuhan's outbreak, which depicted, accurately, a situation much worse than authorities were then letting on. I spoke earlier to Isabel Hilton, CEO of China Dialogue, about this. I began by asking how, as Chinese authorities saw it, what Zhang Zhan had done wrong. Well, her her charge was uh, the the catch-all charge of picking quarrels, which is extremely useful charge for the Chinese state because it can be applied to almost anyone. And it has been applied to several journalists this year um, and actually to some prominent businessmen with liberal views. So it pretty much allows you to lock people up when they're doing something that is inconvenient for you. And in her case, the inconvenience was that she chronicled in some detail the the very bungled and and repressive response in the early stage of the pandemic. And the government is busy rewriting that story, particularly in advance of a visit from the World Health Organization, uh, which uh, is bent on uh, trying to uncover the origins of the pandemic, uh, no doubt ably assisted by the Chinese government. Um, Even as I form these words, I realise that this is going to sound like a stupid question, but I'm going to run with it anyway. What is the Chinese Communist Party's particular difficulty with whistleblowers, truth tellers, call them what you will? Why would they not react to something like this just by saying, well, you know, all information in a situation like that is good information. Uh, We hope to learn from these mistakes. Thank you for pointing them out. Well, it's actually, it is a good question because when you look at the Chinese state and the degree of control that the party has over almost every aspect of it, you wonder why a handful of independent journalists should be such a threat. But remember that back in the beginning of this in in Wuhan, this system messed up so extremely badly. And there was so much anger, particularly around the death of that celebrated doctor, who was also a whistleblower in the early stages, that it did threaten to get out of control. And I think that what people like Zhang Zhan uh, threaten is the party's insistence that 
everything is for the best in the best of possible worlds under party control. Anything that challenges that seems to be, they seem to regard it as an existential threat. And that does suggest that certainly they're afraid that their control of China is not as formidable as it looks. And that anything that rocks the, the, the surface or scratches the surface of this official narrative has the potential to get out of control. Otherwise, you know, just they have so much power and people like Jan Jan have so little. It's very hard to understand why they should be treated so savagely. There were a few brave protesters outside her trial uh, in Shanghai uh, who had traveled to Shanghai uh, in order to show their support. And again, that does suggest that if if people were allowed to show their views and demonstrate their opinions, the support for people like Zhang Zhan would be much greater uh, than we can see at the moment. I mean, it's a parallel I'm sure has been drawn many times before, but does the Chinese Communist Party fear the possibility that Wuhan might have been or might yet become their Chernobyl, if you will? Because there is, of course, that conventional, if probably somewhat flawed wisdom that that was the beginning of the end for the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, that this terrible disaster happened, that they screwed up the response and tried to cover it up, uh, and in so doing, uh, admitted their fallibility. I, I think that was certainly the feeling right at the beginning. I think, though, that, that the situation has changed and, and what the government has been quite successful at doing is pointing to the response in the rest of the world to the pandemic and demonstrating, therefore, the superiority of the Chinese system. So to continue with the Chernobyl analogy, had you had meltdowns in you know, pretty much around the world uh, six months later, uh, which were badly handled, by respective governments, then you might have had a different story. And that's essentially where the analogy falls down. Yes, at the beginning, it looked like the it, it really exposed the failings of the system, you know, the, the incapacity of the system to deal with bad news and to respond to it, which, you know, is, is at the root of this. Um, but then it's now convinced its citizens, or most of them, that actually it did rather well compared to the United States or Brazil or or Europe. You know, all of all of which are are still battling the pandemic. The Chinese government will be aware, of course, that wailing on one whistleblower like this will attract international attention. And we might be sitting here assuming that that international attention will be largely unfavourable. But my question is, not so much are they worried about the international impression this creates, but are they in fact trying to create that international impression that they are ruthless, that they are authoritarian, that they will not tolerate any argument? I think they may be trying to create that internally. Externally, I think the timing has more to do with the, the time of year. I mean, if you notice that the the uh, young people who tried to flee Hong Kong after the imposition of the security law have also gone on strike, and, uh, sorry, have gone on trial, and they've gone on trial in Shenzhen, which is a mainland court just over the border from Hong Kong. Um, there is something about this time of year which favours uh, the, the, the kind of... Um, uh, 
negative uh, action that the government wishes to take. So, you know, if you look at it, people are distracted in the West, which is where the objections are likely to come from by uh, trying to hold Christmas and New Year celebrations in the middle of a pandemic. You have a transition in process in the United States where, frankly, this kind of, of case is likely to get far less attention uh, than it than it would, for example, when, when uh, Joe Biden becomes president. So it's a good moment to do this. It sends a strong message internally and it it, uh, it get, attracts less um, negative publicity externally. It's also worth noting that China, China is trying to change the narrative on human rights in the United Nations. And there has been a, a low-key fight over who will chair the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. Uh, it's Asia-Pacific's turn. Fiji was was um, proposed. China objected. So it's trying to get control of the global narrative of human rights. And this is, and, and part of this is to suppress opinion at home. We've also um, had uh, the arrest recently of a Bloomberg news assistant in Beijing. So it goes beyond Wuhan. It, it goes to a, a real grip on, on national and international narratives. That was Isabel Hilton of China Dialogue. It is, of course, Monday. And as is usual at this time on Monday, here is our weekly roundup of the world's more positive or at least less terrible news. Welcome to the 39th of these weekly unwrappings of the dozens of pairs of goddamn socks of the COVID-19 news cycle in search of the present you actually bloody wanted of good news. And there was good news at last for Rudy Giuliani, commander-in-chief of the elite strike force legal team of US President Benito Cartman, as he continued his quest to expose the monstrous fraud that deprived his orange patron of victory in November's election. After weeks of dedicated sleuthing and at least one press conference outside a gardening centre next to a crematorium and a dildo shop, and no, that still hasn't got old, which is why we're playing this Four Seasons track again, a, as in one, singular, fraudulent vote has been discovered, cast on behalf of a dead citizen of the crucial swing state and home of Four Seasons Total Landscaping, Pennsylvania. Charges were filed by the District Attorney of Delaware County against one alleged local ne'er-do-well who voted on behalf not only of himself, as was his right, but on behalf of his late mother, which was not. The bad news for Giuliani is that the indicted scofflaw is a registered Republican who illegally voted twice for Donald Trump, so this would appear to extend Joe Biden's lead in the cheesesteak state to 81,661. But still, a telling blow has been struck for the integrity of American democracy, which is surely all Giuliani and Trump wanted. And there was further good news from the world of American jurisprudence. Would you like to ride in my beautiful blue? Would you like to ride in my beautiful blue? 
which was also good news for those of us who enjoy being reminded of the kind of bygone story which would have featured in a wry sidelong look at the news such as this at the time, and not only because it helps pad out the minutes at what is, frankly, generally a pretty moribund time of year even when everybody isn't cooped up indoors by an airborne menace. Because, and we are going to need that gear grinding sound effect again, Sticking also with the subject of airborne menaces, you see once again how subtly these monologues are pieced together, Christmas was a merry one for Richard and Mayumi Heen, pardoned by the state of Colorado for their part in the 2009 hoax in which they claimed that their son Falcon had been accidentally whisked into the blue yonder in a homemade weather balloon. It caused, at the time, quite the hue and indeed cry. I'm going to ask all three of you to hang on just a minute because we have rather an incredible breaking news story that we're following right now. And this is coming to us out of Colorado. What you all see right there is an experimental aircraft that inside of which is a six-year-old boy. Shortly after emergency services were scrambled to recover the rogue dirigible, the ruse deflated, story proved to be a lot of hot air, etc. The alleged juvenile pilot was instead hiding in the family's attic. The parents did brief stretches of porridge and paid a fine, all of which has now been officially forgiven. And there was still further good news for those hoping that Falcon's father Richard might rise to this occasion by furnishing the local paper with a leaden, balloon-related zinger. This is like a new launch, he told the Denver Post. I'm flying high. <clears throat> well, quite. Though we nevertheless hope that if his son has suffered any lasting psychological wounds, this will helium. It's a living. And from Australia, good news reaches us for anybody presently squinting quizzically at the use-by dates on festive treats they may have panic bought during lockdown some months back and wondering how much of a liberty they may safely take. Boffins at the Australian National Library researching the archive of fabled bush poet Banjo Patterson. He wrote Waltzing Matilda, that's why we're playing it. Really a great deal of thought does go into these. Found a tin of chocolates fully 120 years old. The antique confectionery, interred beneath a pile of personal papers in a box, was inside a souvenir tin of the sort distributed to troops serving in the Boer War on the instruction of Queen Victoria. Patterson had covered the conflict for Australian newspapers. The six fingers of Patterson's chocolate are intact enough that the Cadbury's logo stamped into them is clearly visible. Patterson's reasons for not eating the chocolate are lost to history. Perhaps he fretted that 120 years hence, compilers of whimsical news reviews might struggle for material in the post-Christmas longueurs and accordingly bequeath them to posterity, in which case we thank him for that and for also allowing us to allot this week's last words to Queen Victoria herself. <laughs> For the tins were inscribed with a message from the monarch. I wish you a happy new year. As indeed do the royal we. 
And that's all for today's late edition. A big thank you to our producer, Carlotta Ribello, and to our studio manager, Zoe Kilborn. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 